Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades. Uh, there was a popular joke in the Soviet Union. Um, I'm gonna say it in Russian first. Kamu Maxim Sorrento. Or who lives best in Russia? Maxim Gorky is in Sorrento. As you can clearly see, this episode is what I promised you, and it's gonna be all about the crazy and weird Soviet obsession with Italy. And to whom else could I ask any questions about this than to the greatest podcaster on the planet Earth? And I should greet him properly now. Well, let's see now. What do I remember from university? Oh, yeah. Salvera Jubeo. Qui agis, magister? Are you insulting? Sorry. Are you insulting me in various ways that I cannot understand? No, not really. I'm just trying. I'm, I'm I'm trying to remember those very tiny few things from Latin which I studied in university, man. Check that out. You know what? I had to do five years in Latin growing up uh, in Italy. It was one of those you got to do it. I don't remember anything. Like not one thing. I remember some some tiny phrases. Oh yeah, if you haven't noticed already, we are talking with Mr. Daniele Bolelli here. Hello, hello. Don't worry, the nice men are not here. So, the first the first things first, I, I stepped up, stepped, uh, stumbled upon this whole subject by just finding out that the Soviets made some cars, and the most favorite car of them all was called Zhiguli. And it turned out actually to just be a Fiat, but made from Soviet parts. It is actually right now owned by Fiat, so they just took the blueprints, through poor quality parts in there, and then just made them. And apparently, yeah, Maxim Gorky, the famous writer, actually lived in Sorrento for a while, until Stalin called him back and made him do things. But yeah, Stalin called him back, and you know what? The guy actually returned to the Soviet Union, which was the biggest yeah. surprise. Yeah, I'm missing something there. Why? I don't know. He just got called back as a national hero. He went back in 1928 and died in 1932. Okay, I guess because in my mind, you know, Stalin calls you back, it sounds like bad things are about to happen to you, but maybe not. You know, in that case, I can see why returning is a good idea. Well, you know, Stalin would have killed him if he wanted to in Italy as well, but, you know, right. it's, it's, all, it's all interesting. And then there was this period where we were just obsessed with Italian movies, Italian culture, Italian singers, especially Adriano Celentano. 
I have to admit, I only know his name and I know that he has visited the Soviet Union. I haven't heard a single song of his. And we also watched a lot of Italian movies and used Italian souvenirs for, for, for literally everything. So, I don't know, was something similar in Italy? What did you know about the Soviet Union? And did you even know that there were movies made together with the Soviet Union, like The Incredible Adventures of Italians in the Soviet Union, made in 1974 for one? Extremely yeah, popular. It was the first I, movie shown in the Soviet Union which, which had boobs in it. Seriously, man. Nice. Seriously? Well, that sounds like there's an Italian influence right there. I think that's my favorite Italian influence of all. You know, nudity in every possible context where you can throw it in. That's always a plus. Wow. The, um, yeah, no, man. I mean, it's kind of like it was a weird word because I grew up, that's when I was born. I was born in 1974. And growing up in that time period, I mean, it sounds silly because it sounds like I'm, you know, the 90-year-old guy telling you, you know, back in my day. But the reality is that even though it wasn't that long ago, in pre-internet days, you didn't know shit about what was going on across the border anywhere. You know, you England was a fantasy based on, you know, being in Italy. Soviet Union, you might as well have been talking about, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz and uh, some strange fairy tale land because... It was pure fantasy realm, you know, nobody had, uh, how many people did I know personally who had been, who had any kind of direct experience? Probably none, or maybe one or something. So uh, the world before internet was really a whole different thing, particularly when it comes to uh, knowing about the cultures of other places. So it's, uh, yeah, for me growing up, there were a lot of places, Soviet Union included, where I really, I mean, if I really think now, based on my understanding of the world now, of what I knew then, it was nothing. It's just a bunch of stereotypes, basically, and uh, that's about it. That's all you get. Yeah, that's those stereotypes is, is why I'm doing this, this show, like my right. show. And, and, and that's kind of interesting. And Italy was especially interesting because we didn't get that much movies from other countries. We got some French comedies, but I remember a listener of mine telling me that he's seen this movie called Signor Robinson like three times already. That was extremely popular. And that's the one right. called The Ace, I don't know how it's in Italian. I don't, I don't speak yeah. Italian, sadly. And there was also this, this one which was... Uh, Rimini, Rimini? I don't even know what that means, but that was also yeah. kind of popular, which is light, light ideas. Rimini is a popular tourist destination on the Adriatic Sea. Oh. It's classic. It's one of the most popular places for kind of a nightlife and beach life and all of that. It's, uh, it's super packed with tourists in summer. Wow. Well, sadly, I have to say I haven't been to Italy at all. I would love to visit. Yeah, that part, I think you guys got the wrong end of the deal because, you know, while Italy as a place is awesome and it's beautiful, while, you know, the wine, that kind of stuff is great, Italian movies, save for a few exceptions, were not exactly the best aspect of Italian culture. Let's put it that way. Oh, come on. That was the only part of the West that we got. And That's you know, what I mean. But, it, but Italy also, Italy basically represented the West and I had to dig up some more political jokes to, to get in the theme. And one of them was um, that two guys are sitting just at work watching a TV, a football match, soccer match on the TV, and it's Italy and USSR. And one of them says, wow, I would love to be in Rome at this moment. And the other just just, uh, just surprisingly says, but, but the game's in Moscow, not in Rome. And the first one says back to him, 
Well, that's a shame. I would have to skip the match then. <laughs> yeah, I feel you there. No, in fact, Italy as a country, it's there's something awesome about it. I mean, visiting, tourism, it's beautiful. Living in Italy kind of sucks. And I think part of the reason why Italian cinema, I'm not a big fan, goes with the same reason why living in Italy kind of sucks is because it's the kind of culture where it's pretty conservative. I don't mean conservative in a political sense. I mean it in a taking chances kind of way. You know, mm. you have a new idea in Italy, you're going to have 10 people around you are going to immediately tell you a million good reasons why it's never going to work. And so there's a tendency to frown upon innovation, not to try new things, mm -hmm. not to be particularly daring, which really stifle creativity. So, you know, it's not that there aren't some, like, for example, even in Italian cinema, one of the, I don't remember, maybe it was five years ago, six years ago, something like that. I went back and there was an Italian TV series on. Now, I never really watch Italian TV series because 99% of cases, they absolutely suck. They are so bad. It's not even funny. But it's this series called the Romanzo Criminale, which is the it's a re, based on a real story. It was this uh, gang that came up in Rome in the 1970s to emerge as one of the most powerful criminal organization in the country, starting out from just a couple of kids on the street, and um, and the whole series is so damn good. It's unbelievable. The screenwriting is a plus. The cinematography, the acting, everything is amazing. So suddenly it was a wake up call where it's like. Well, so there is high quality stuff out there. The problem is that nobody take a chance on producing. Nobody does it. You know, like that same director, all they have him do now is movies about criminal organization and mafia and this and that. And he's like, the guy is awesome, but don't make him do the same thing over and over again. And that shows kind of the conservatism of Italian culture. You know, you have one guy who miraculously slipping through the cracks, managed to do something new and amazing. And immediately the formula becomes having do the same thing over and over again forever. And, you know, the reality is he's not going to do anything new, really. He's going to do the same thing repeatedly. This reminds me how uh, actually a lot of people in Europe, a lot of chefs in Europe complain about getting Michelin stars for one because, you know, they, they, they build their restaurant to be successful, then they get the Michelin stars and then they're just afraid to change anything just so yep. not to lose the stars. Absolutely. And if you listeners don't know what a Michelin star is, uh, I truly, truly wish that you once would eat in a restaurant which has at least a single Michelin star. No, seriously, guys, check it out. It's amazing. But yeah, I don't know. Were there any actually good movies from those times in the Soviet era? I don't know. I really loved the old spaghetti westerns, as they yeah. called them, with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that was the good stuff. That's probably the best stuff that came out of Italy in that period was the the Sergio Leone spaghetti western stuff were awesome. And if nothing else, I mean, when you watch them now, they are slow as hell. You know, the pacing probably worked in the 70s, in the 80s maybe. Now you would shoot yourself if you watch them because they're really, really slow-paced. But um, but the soundtrack was one of the coolest things ever. They had the new Morricone with the soundtrack of all of those. Yeah, that was amazing. Just and great. I mean, I love that one so much that I even tracked it down. I tracked down who owns the rights to the music now and actually paid to be able to use it as a intro to one of my podcasts, History on Fire. I used that music for the beginning of the podcast. Wow. It's just, well, it's just epic and amazing and just it's just good stuff. Well, ex excellent, man. But yeah, in, talking about Westerns, 
Over here, which is the interesting part, because uh, you're you're an expert on Native Americans, right? Mm -hmm. So in the Soviet Union, we had a lot of books about them and a, and a lot of Westerns, which we got not only those those uh, from from Italy. Soviet Union was always rooting for the Native Americans because Americans were the evil guys, the oppressors all the time. Well, in that department, me too. I was all like, you know, when they play cowboy and Indians, who's the freak who decide to play the cowboy? You know, of course, you always choose the Indian. It's cooler. It's more fun. It's more. So, yeah, no, that one, I'm completely with you on it. No, it's just a cultural thing. This, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at this uh, and I'm, I, I'm watching all these Cold War movies. And for one, uh, I was watching, for example, the very, like, Rocky Four. And I was watching yep. that, and I see this is a completely different movie. For me, it's a tragical story of a brainwashed guy who's forced to do this <laughs> while his real wife and kids are in the gulag somewhere. Like, and, and right. if, he, if he loses the battle, then, you know, he's screwed for life. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Ivan Drago. He was just misunderstood. Well, obviously. Yeah. But I don't know about those things. It's, it's kind of strange, because we over here thought that, oh, my God, an Italian person is visiting us, and... Italy was one of the few windows to the West. The second was Finland, but Finland was, well, uh, Finlandized by that period of time. But, but yeah, it's kind of, kind of weird. We, especially weird, interesting was that we bought a bunch of Italian souvenirs, especially for the Moscow Olympics in 1980. Yeah. And all of them got stolen from a promo center. Those were uh, the red Panini-made squeezable cars, and all of them got stolen. <laughs> That's messed up. That no, and, and they were stolen by the organized crime because yeah. Italian Italian souvenirs were so popular that they yeah. just were selling them on the black market for insane amounts of money. I bet. I bet. No, and yeah, that must yeah, that must have been quite crazy right there. It's nothing like supply and demand, right? If you make something really rare and tough to get, automatically something that would be like big deal, some panini stuff, become like a huge important thing. Yeah, I guess so, but it was it was always like the Soviet Union had a few things really, really good, and then everything else was just terrible, or not available at all, like completely. And I, I was I was thinking about this in a, in a way because you know, especially when it comes to organized crime, when I was thinking about this, me and me and you, we are we're both born in countries with like you know Russian mafia and Italian mafia are the only ma organized crime organizations yeah. worth speaking about. Yakuza. Pff. Yo, go somewhere else. That's the kids' table in comparison. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, Sorry, that's... my Japanese listeners. I have about like 12 of those. I don't even know how they... Why would they care about eight the are, uh, Eight are people who live in Japan but are not quite Japanese, probably. I guess so. I don't, I don't even... But what's what's your what's your favorite kind of memory of, of living in Italy at that, that era? And did you actually hear something, like any shocking news, any myths or anything about the Soviet culture at all? I think what happened was, um, for me, living in Italy was... Um, I think I started appreciating it a lot more after I left, mm. because then the kind of stuff that I actually enjoyed about Italy was something that um, I... You know, I thought it was, you know, everywhere in the world that this is the good stuff, right? I mean, everybody's got that. Plus, other people may have something better out there. And then I realized that actually when you travel and you go to other places, you're trading things. You know, the stuff that you take for granted is really not taken to be taken for granted somewhere else. There's something. So now, like the last uh, many years of my life since I've been living in the United States, I appreciate Italy actually a lot more. 
traveling in Italy is more exciting, seeing places that, you know, you grow up, it's like the place that is right around the corner, you don't think much of it. Now, seeing it with the eyes almost of a tourist, because I don't live there all the time, uh, everything is so much cooler, so much more exciting. Even things that maybe I knew a little about, they were presented so poorly. For example, I want to do a podcast series now about Caravaggio, the Italian painter. Now, I kind of knew something about him growing up, and I saw some of the paintings, and I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty badass. But now that actually studying it, in a way that's not the way school makes you study stuff. It's so, like, his story, his life story is so wild, it's so intense. There's so many, it's like, it's a TV series, it's a movie. It's uh, it's so much more exciting than the way it was presented to me. And so now I dig it. Now if I go back to Italy and I get a chance to see one of his things, I'm super excited. Back then, not so much. So I really, like, I think I sort of idealize our life could be in other places, not realizing that it's always uh, it's always a trade-off. The great stuff about Italy, I didn't find it in other places. The great stuff about other places, I didn't find in Italy. So it's always uh, a bit of a trade-off. Now, I'll tell you one that's kind of funny about the whole Italian-Soviet connection. I remember growing up um, when I was maybe, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, something like that. It was the first time when they started showing on Italian TV uh, American wrestling. And I don't mean the actual sport. I mean the fake stuff, you know, the WWE, the uh, Hulk Hogan kind of thing. I know about it, but I haven't seen a single fight of that. Well, it's hilarious. I mean, it's a soap opera for rednecks, basically. But um, it's funny. I, As a kid, I loved it. I thought it was the funnest thing ever. And of course, because it's a, very much of an American production that's designed to, it's based, of course, on old stereotypes. And you have, the, and they had, uh, clearly, they had the evil Russian guy, right? Oh. There was, it was a given, you know, you'd have to have the evil Russian guy that uh, flag-waving American would then beat and everybody clap kind of thing. But, you know, this was an American thing that was beginning to make its way in Italy, but it was very kind of a niche, not really mainstream. And then one thing that I found out, the one time when they did come to put on a show in Milan, and it was pretty fun, and I went, the guy who was supposedly the evil Russian guy was born in Italy. It was a guy who just was oh. speaking with a Russian accent, but was completely an Italian guy. It was completely fake. He wasn't Russian at all. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I remember thinking, that's that's what the whole show is about, right? Is 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 by stereotype and crazy fun. But it was. I remember thinking that was that was kind of mind blowing. Wow, yeah, it kind of shows how the world has globalized. But by talking about accents, I I comment on my movie tracks, which I do for my listeners sometimes on how people speak terrible Russian in the movies. How yep. do you feel about terrible Italian in the movies? Is it the oh, same? I think so. I mean, you hear it and it's funny sometimes when you hear like, you could have, you could pay a guy a hundred bucks to listen to the stuff and correct you a tiny bit. Like I was watching, what did I see? Oh, there's this whole TV series called Da Vinci's Demons. Oh. It's like the whole ground, thing is, is supposed to be about Leonardo da Vinci and it's all set in Italy. Huh? Oh, Say it, that again? It isn't connected with Dan Brown, is it? Has it anything to do with Not Dan Brown? Not that I know. I know it's oh. a, 
No, 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 different one. Okay. It's that one was the they made the movies about his novels and stuff. This is just kind of a whole thing about Leonardo da Vinci in a very fictionalized kind of way. And uh, and throughout the movie, they regularly mispronounce Italian words. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't take that much to have one Italian guy work on the production who tell you, no, you actually put the accent on this other word letter, not that one. And you actually, like, how much money are you spending on a TV production? Really, you can't pay a guy a few bucks to just... Cor- it was hilarious. Yeah, it was just- it's the same with Russian, because they basically, they just do Google Translate, and then they just, I, I, I presume... They sometimes give actors just, you know, the, the text, how it should sound without even explaining what are they talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. worst Russian ever is in, is on Bourne Trilogy. I don't remember which movie, but the one where he visits Russia. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jason Bourne does not speak Russian ever. Yeah. No, I, that's a given. It's like, I think it's the way it works in all the, like, what was it, the big one? Uh, Dances with Walls. They had the whole thing about Native Americans and, uh, you know, they went all out hiring the person who speak uh, Lakota language so that half of the movie would be in Lakota. Well, what they didn't explain to them was that there are Lakota languages spoken one way by women and in a very different way by men. And they hired a woman uh, who translated and she translated in her way, which means that all the male characters speak with the female inflection. And it's like, it's really large. It's and uh, I think it's typical. It's just how Hollywood handles uh, linguistic diversity. is a bit messy. Oh, yeah. By the way, uh, while we're at it, Glenn just, just wrote to me. Glenn from the Lesser Bonaparte. Yep. He wants to know, he wants to know if Chef Boyardee is Italy's Captain America. Wait, which guy? Ooh. Chef Boyardee, some sort of dude who's <laughs> apparently on some sort of food in the United States. The hell is that? I don't know. It's 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 on food, or something. He's drunk. He's <laughs> doing crazy talk. No, I, I mean don't... no, I mean he's he's just. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know American pop culture references that well. Right. No, but hell, even I live here. I have no idea what is. No, no clue. So tell him he's drunk and to sober up and then get back to us. No, I don't know. Uh, that that that's there are very slim chances of that happening, man. Yeah, I figure, but still, at some point, you know, in between binges, he could sober up for five minutes. No, no, it's okay. He's he actually drinks drinks uh, quite quite a little. Doesn't drink much. He works more than I do, man. We're really yeah. serious in lesser Bonaparte now, especially since I got thrown in there. Well, man, well in that case, working. I change my advice. Tell him to work less and drink more. <laughs> you need you need to find your booze and work balance. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's quite important. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, also, but wait, do you know where the movies, like the Spaghetti Westerns, were filmed? Because I know they weren't actually filmed in America. They were filmed somewhere else, but I don't know where. Yeah, it was in Europe. I don't remember if it was in actual, like, southern Italy or was in Spain. It's obviously a Mediterranean place. Yeah. Uh, kind of dry. So it was, I think it was either Italy or Spain, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how, how they turned Clint Eastwood in America, into an American like icon and how we kind of got to see some, some weird things. Of course, every time any foreign movie was, was shown anywhere, uh, it came with a preamble and, and someone had to explain it. it was, we had this Arts Council in the Soviet Union. I mean, everything that got published had to go through the Arts Council. And I just right. sometimes wonder how they actually managed to, to pull, pull these things through it. 
series. By the way, I just checked, thanks to the gods of Google for you, it was filmed in Spain. That's oh. where they film all the spaghetti western were out there. So Clint Eastwood became the default American in a movie, in an Italian movie, which was filmed in Spain. Yeah, yeah that's globalization for you. And this is, by the way, is globalization before real globalization, because it's not at the time when, uh, uh, you know, it's before the time when now globalization is on steroids compared to what it was in the 1970s or 1980s, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. But is there something you would like to know about the Soviet Union? Like something that you didn't know when you were growing up or, or something? I await to be enlightened. Well, of course, my main and favorite topic about any country in the world is women. So please do tell, enlighten me about the ways of uh, females in the country. Oh, boy. I'll, I'll, start the, I'll start with the fact that in modern day Latvia, they, they do all of these statistical researches about the trends in population. Mm -hmm. And as far as a lot of internet surveys go, Latvia has, according to some internet surveys, Latvia has the most beautiful women on the planet and the most depressive men. Wait, that does not... What's going on there? I, I don't know. I don't the know. The statistics just don't match up. Something is off. What's going on? Well, how do you explain that? You know, if you have the most beautiful women on the planet, you better be damn happy. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that uh, one thing that Soviet Union did actually really good is gender equality here. I mean, mm -hmm. utterly complete gender equality because everyone was supposed to work, whether you liked it or not. And, and so nobody cared. Man, woman, man, who cares? You go and work in your factory because and then be happy about it because happiness is mandatory. Right. Uh, yeah. And so kind of no one really cared. And our women are... I don't know. I would say they're strong, stronger and, and more ambitious and kind of crazier than, than other women right now because of all of this. They kind of like yeah. to be feminine because they really couldn't be as feminine uh, in the Soviet era right now. But for one, almost all of my bosses have been female. And our best president in this country, Latvia, has also been female. And our prime minister also was female for a while. And the most influential Latvian politician, Solvit Abotin, who's also the most hated politician, is also obviously female. So, I don't know. They, they like to take control, and then we kind of feel sad. <laughs> so, I, uh, you have these super beautiful women who kick your ass day and night. Is that what's going on? Well, they're, they're not kicking our ass day and night. It's just that you don't want to mess with them. Well, that's fair. I, I, that's no reason to be depressed. Well, there are there are some stereotypes there, especially since I, right now I live in um, I don't live in Riga. I, I moved to this very very small town in Latgal. Like the eastern border is located right now on the eastern border. I, I guess this is the most eastern town in Latvia, mm -hmm. and it, it's it's uh, basically in the middle of a forest. When I go outside to to my when I went outside to my job when I worked there. I just noticed in the morning that some foxes are just digging through my trash in outside. And I can see wild boars and deer when I go out to, to my balcony and have a cigarette. They're just there. And That's this, awesome. This is a t yeah, because I live in the middle of nowhere. But, but well, this area has a very special kind of regional, regional thing going on there that in all the public life and all those public spheres, 
everyone wants to do business only with men. So that's kind of women are kind of a bit oppressed here because this this area has been a bit more Russianized and has been a bit bit culturally different than the rest of Latvia. On the other hand, men are supposed to just hand over all of their money to female. To, to women, to their wives, all of it. They literally sneak out and try to find ways how to keep any parts of their salary. Because even though all the public business is handled by men, once you go home, your your wife will just stare at you and say, where's the money? Damn. Okay, I'm beginning to get the picture here. I get it. Okay. Yeah, that I can see how that would be troubling. That changes the dynamics a little bit. But still... I think I could put up with a lot in exchange for the most beautiful women on earth. Well, according to internet, okay? I'm not saying it's fact. I'm not a, not, not trying to offend anyone here. It's yeah, but, do we, yeah. yeah, I don't know. But but there are there there is some difference in women. I mean, northern women and and I have found that there are two two types of beautiful women in Europe. There's the southern women like Spanish, mm-hmm. Portuguese, Italian women, and then there's like the Russian women. Like think about you know what I'm talking Think about the Russian thing in the 19th century St. Petersburg lady. That's, right. that's one kind of ideal of beauty. And then there's the southern, more active and more open open type of beautiful women in Europe. I, I think it kind of splits down in the middle somewhere. In, in southern Germany, I guess Bavaria would be the, the, the point where it kind of cuts off in, in style. You know, I was uh, growing up in Italy for me. Ever since I was a kid, I was, I was struck down with this course that I was very, very rarely attracted to white women. And the problem was that every single woman around me was white. So that made for very slim pickings because, you know, uh, it's uh, it was one of those things where I'm like, why the hell do I have to have this weird taste thing where I don't like all the women? It was just terrible. So coming to the U.S. where there's, especially in L.A., where there's crazy ethnic diversity was paradise for me. Well, yeah, you have a lot more diversity than here. We have, like, I don't know, about maybe 20, okay, maybe 30, I don't know precise numbers, less than 100 mm-hmm. people of color here, black people, whatever, right. every other one. Because, you know, there are basically Latvians and Russians here. We don't get other other things. Also, and Latvia that's... is such a miserable place right now that even the refugees don't want to come here. Like, we have this <laughs> quota... And the few refugees that were kind of allocated to us, most of them just said, what, Latvia? What is this? I can't find that on the map even. Do do people have electricity there? I'm not going there. I'll go back to Syria. It sounds a lot cooler. Yeah, that's when you know things could use some improvement. When the refugees take a peek and go, I think I'm going back in the war zone. That would be... It's not uh, not so bad anymore. I mean, we are in the EU and we're kind of... We joined OEDC just a week ago or something. But it's just that nobody knows about my country. I live in the literal middle of nowhere. Like, you know, I actually had it. Uh, it was a joke that I had in the latest book I've written. I have uh, like a gazillion. The whole book is written in short chapters. So there's um, um, one of the chapters speak about this guy that I was uh, doing boxing with. And uh, uh, he was kind of like the stereotype of the hardcore, few words, uh, mean as hell, super athletic Russian. So at one point in the title of this chapter, I refer to him as the evil Russian. And then I open a parenthesis and said, well, Latvian actually, but nobody knows where Latvia is. So that's part of the chapter. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to do, do my thick accent now. You not know where Latvia is? 
<laughs> we know where I, you are, though. <laughs> I am sure where I just gained a lots of fans thanks to this statement. So I'm sure that my visit to Latvia will be well received. Oh, no, man, it's going to be amazing. I mean, people from Latvia actually don't listen to my show because they know all of the stuff which I'm talking yeah, yeah, about. But you should really visit Latvia. I mean, we have a KGB museum here. Like That's literal it. building where, where people were tortured and they have these yeah. very, very small cells. And I went into one and it was like six square meters, essentially, with, with two maybe beds. That, uh, maybe that explained the popularity of Italian movie. Maybe you, you, you misunderstood. It's not that they were popular because people liked it. They were popular because they were used as enhanced interrogation <laughs> techniques during torture session by the KGB. No, uh, I, I don't know, man. Those people didn't actually get it. It was like a six square meter room. And I just went in there and thought, wow, well, how many people could be there? I mean, there are just two two wooden planks where to sleep. So yeah. not, not much more than two. And then the guide says, oh, it was for 15 people. Oh, Jesus. And they had and they and they had like weird weird conditions. It was it actually wasn't like cold or anything. It was extremely damp and hot all the time with lamps oh. with with huge lamps with extreme light all the time. Yikes. And you had like 10 minutes outside and outside was in the center of the block with like this extremely tiny patch of actually fresh air. Uh, completely locked out in a cage and the guards just staring down at you all the time. That was one of the scariest experiences in my life. And there were smaller cells also. So I really recommend you come come and visit visit this this place. Yeah, how could I possibly miss out on this? This sounds like an experience worth having. Oh come on, we have nice nice things here as well. For example, historical reconstruction and all this all this ancient stuff. And I mean, That's you know, I heard I heard this thing as um, I'm listening to another podcast. It's about the Italianification because I didn't know a lot about it, and I kind of drew I kind of drew drew parallels here uh, on how Soviet Union kind of split apart and our nationalism due to how Italy was formed. Although we we didn't have we didn't have Cavour here, we have Gorbachev, and he did the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> that that works as well. <laughs> Yeah, man, no, this is, uh, yeah, it's funny. I've never, you know, it's weird when I think about it. I never really travel, not just kind of on the former Eastern Bloc. I haven't really traveled much in Europe, period. You know, because the thing was, it was so damn expensive when I was growing up to travel anywhere that, you know, you go, maybe you just stay in Italy, you go, you find your place by the sea for vacation. That's about the extent of it. And if you had any money to travel, you wouldn't want to see Europe because you're already, you know, you kind of know Europe and it's going to cost a crazy amount of money anyway. So you might as well just go across the world and see something completely different from what you're used to that's not European at all. So it was, uh, yeah, I remember going in very strange direction in my travels, but I know very little about the rest of Europe. I was mostly in Italy the whole time. Oh, well, well travel, what was kind of different? Because when you were growing up, the travel in the Soviet Union happened like this. You had to have a reason to travel somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And then you had to go a permit. You had to go and get a permit from the KGB and they had your full record on there. Yeah. And they and there were always you always had to travel in groups and there were always people there spying on you and everyone had to write, write down reports and everything, so it was extremely hard to go anywhere abroad. So yeah. that led to weird things when we actually kind of got our independence in the nineties and we started to travel abroad and we didn't know anything at all about how to travel in Europe because there were those like you know concerts, bands, dance groups, whatever, traveling abroad giving concerts like in the first first period. And my dad, who used to play bass for the opera orchestra for 20 years, 
he was in, in one such a kind of a dance group. He was in the orchestra. The opera was, was giving uh, tours. And at that time, on the border from Poland to Germany, mm-hmm. United, uh, like, you know, pretty standard phrase in the early 90s, like the German customs officer comes in the bus and says, well, do you have any guns or drugs with you? Like, you know, do you want to legalize it or something? But people in the ex-Soviet Union took that as a joke and, you know, they didn't understand how Western Europe worked. So one of them actually joked, oh, yeah, sure, I have cocaine here hidden in my stash. That held them on the border for about a day and the whole bus was yeah. essentially dismantled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, I remember even like for me, I thought it was weird when I came to the United States and they asked you this questionnaire like, are you moving to the United States in order to violently overthrow the government? Are you planning to run an international drug dealing organization? And of course, you know, your temptation is, of course, to check yes to everything because it's funny. But yeah, these guys do not have sense of humor. If you do that, you are screwed. But I don't even know. Why do they ask these things? Do they kind of hope that... Oh, I know, because who's going to check it? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was here to do. You mean you mean that's bad? Oh, sorry, I didn't know. Now, now could you point me to the closest water supply? I'm, I, uh, this, this bottle does not contain fluoride and other chemicals. No, yeah. seriously. It's, it's what is this? Yeah, that stuff was just always a joke. I always was like, what the hell? Who's doing stuff like this? You know, in another kind of way, though, compared to Italy, in US, people are considerably more worried about breaking the law. Like, i give you an example. Even something as basic as not even just hardcore criminal activity but like cheating in school i don't know how it was for you growing up but for in italy like if you don't cheat in school you are seen as like if you are the smart kid who knows everything and you don't help everybody else in the class giving your answer you're an asshole you know yeah exactly the same thing kind of like what do you mean you don't pass me your homework are you insane you know what's wrong with you you know it it was the same thing really because yeah uh, but it always works like this because the Soviet Union taught us that way because in Soviet Union you had to cheat the government all the time to get to get stuff done. You, exactly. You... And so Italy in that sense was completely the same. Whereas I came to the US and people here would be, you don't cheat in school. Don't you know that is bad? That wouldn't you rather be proud of the fact that you studied hard? And, you... and I'm like, are you insane? Do you really believe this shit that they tell you? It's like, that's the kind of... And yet, yes, like people in US wouldn't do that. And I was always, it was funny because everybody, all international students, regardless of where they came from, we all cheated the hell out of everything because the whole understanding was, yeah, I mean, you study, but ultimately you have to edge your bets and, you know, it, school is not your friend. This is a competition where if you don't do well, they screw you over. So you need to do what you got to do. Whereas Americans were always very hardcore about how, no, you need to be honest. You cannot cheat. You can, and they would get all scandalized. They would be horrified if you do it. And I was like, really? That's just so damn weird. I don't know. But it's yeah. a I don't know. American thing because most everybody I knew from all other countries, they were all more than happy to. Yeah, you know, you help you help a guy out when, when he's like on a hangover on the exam and he helps you out some other time. You yeah, learn how yeah. to socialize and that practical skills here. The biggest problem yeah, here that's... is that, that, that that's how we learn business here, over here mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union, because, and that's kind of also also this problem, because uh, in Russian there's this beautiful word, halyava, which, which comes from prison, prison terms, prison slang, mm-hmm. which means pretending that you do work, but actually not working, slacking off. Yeah. 
Because yeah. there was literally no point in actively trying to produce something in the Soviet Union because no incentive to do anything. Of course. So you, you were trying to, to grab as much from the country. But that kind of also leaves, leaves, leaves some bad, bad things because when it's done on the private level, like in schools and, and stuff like that, then it's kind of okay. But when your people, when the people in the government who actually should care try to do that the same and it kind of grows into the huge corruption levels, then it kind of gets terrible. Because you know what? The, we, we have a guy in Latvia called Lembergs who's really compared to Berlusconi. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't know. Americans are kind of worried. I mean, Berlusconi hangs out with, with, with beautiful women. And how is that a bad thing? I, I, no, I mean, that part, is, that part is funny. I mean, there's something entertaining about Berlusconi, but at the same time, the dude was just so, I mean, just like a low-level clown on so many ways, you know. The, yeah. uh, there are some of the shit he did that he would look at, like, who in their... Like, not even, I'm not even talking about politics or the actual policies, just basic, you know, like, I remember this video where he was visiting Germany, and he had to meet with the chancellor, the German chancellor or some shit. And there's this lady who's waiting for him at the end of, you know, the limo pulls up and it opens the door and then there's this long red carpet and then the German chancellor is waiting at the end of the red carpet. Berlusconi gets out of the car and he's clearly on his cell phones and he starts walking around the car for like five minutes as he continues the conversation while there's all the German diplomats are waiting there at the end, just looking on like, I don't fucking believe it. Is this guy for real? Is he really just doing that? And Berlusconi completely oblivious, just keep talking on his cell phone forever. And eventually he's like, okay, I guess I got to go meet the German chancellor. Bye. I, I, uh, think, I think all of those leaders are like that. I mean, Putin also made German chancellor, I mean, poor Angela Merkel. He he's also made her wait like for five hours while arriving to dinner or something. Oh, that's funny. I guess there's something. Maybe there's something about her that just pisses people off. I don't know because it seemed like a trend. Unless maybe it was Berlusconi trying to imitate Putin and he figured that's the way to do it. That could also be. But yeah, that's pretty funny. Do you, do you actually have any advice for like? I mean, you're a European who's living now in the states, and do you have any advice that? America is better than we are here, maybe? Well, I mean, the thing about U.S. is that there are a lot of crap about U.S., uh, a lot. But one of the good things about it that I, probably the reason why I do live here, is, well, there are two main things, I would say. One is that there's a certain willingness to experiment with stuff. Like, if uh, what I found in Europe most of the time was sort of smart cynicism, you know, people generally being fairly smart, but the result of their being smart is usually not wanting to do anything and being kind of cynical about possibilities and this and that. In US, there's like a stupid enthusiasm, which I like. You know, there's, uh, I'd rather have somebody jump up and down and tell me yes, even to things that maybe they shouldn't, rather than somebody who say no to everything. So that in itself, the fact that there's just more willingness to take chances in U.S., I like it a lot. And the other thing, I think I like the fact that clearly not everywhere in U.S., but in places like L.A. or some of the big cities, the fact that you run into people from literally all over the world is fun. You know, if I look at the roster of uh, the class roster when I teach, there are literally names that come from every single part of the world, no exceptions made. And it's awesome. There's something really interesting with that. You can really get in touch with just about any culture you want. 
So I think those are the two factors that I dig the most in terms of living in US. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that's less than desirable, but uh, those aspects are really cool. Yeah, I can I can understand what you're saying about the optimism thing because I've been feeling that too. And you're right when you're when you're speaking about the general jaded cynicism. Europe has a completely different sense of humor for one. A lot of our sure. jokes are terribly dark, way darker than the Americans would want. Because, yeah, in Europe, well, what do you know? We've we've been fighting over here for uh, all the time, essentially, and, and, the, and the people like. We've gone through a ton of tragedies and, and lots of deaths, especially over, like over here in the Eastern Bloc. So yeah, we're we're kind of jaded people. And one of the interesting things is that one of my listeners, when I actually got some Latvian listeners, one of them actually wrote into my show and said that, "Oh my God, you're a disgrace to Latvian country. You're you're not professional enough. You're terrible. You should be more professional. Every you're, you're making Latvia the laughing stock of the world. You should do better and, and just stop podcasting and be amazing and." Until you get better, and I'm like, but I don't know. Americans don't seem to care that I. No, exactly, exactly. That's like, uh, yeah, that's a very, that's an extremely European kind of thing. And uh, like, I mean, think about it. It's like for me, podcasting. If uh, before podcast, when it was radio, if I went to a radio station anywhere in Europe, and I would propose, you know what? Let me. I want to run this show and you know one of my shows really there's no single specific topic is about just anything that I feel like talking about you know is whoever I feel like interviewing there's no single theme it's like so it's a show about well kind of everything whatever I feel like it and uh, you know I'll speak with this uh, super heavy Italian accent because that's how I speak sorry and uh, I'm I'm not the guy to whom you should apologize and I'll occasionally cuss a lot so it's like I mean, anyone in the world would have said, screw you, no, we're not giving you anything. No, that's not going to happen. No, it's not professional enough. And yet you put it out there and people dig it. So it's kind of like there's always a reason. There are always a million reasons to say no to things. Uh, And again, in some cases, it's probably a good idea to be able to say no to stuff. But ultimately, I'm curious to hear what is that these people, the professional critics, the one who sit on the sidelines and always say no to everything, what is that they say yes to? What is that meets the definition of something that actually will make the cut? Um, criticizing is cheap. Criticism is cheap. Even when it's good, it's still the point is, yeah, great. Now you told me why something sucks. How about creating something good? How about giving a model of how to do things, not simply telling people how not to do things? I'm more interested in that, honestly. Yeah, I understand you, especially, you know, what about the accents? I guess our show, this episode, is just the combination of the coolest accents on the planet Earth by this point, obviously. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I understand that you, you have the accents. At least your name is pronounceable. People just can't seem to be able to say Andresons in any way or form. No, I'm... <laughs> But that again, it's just, just happening. Your your name kind of rolls off the tongue. But yeah, but the criticism part, I, I take criticism quite well. I mean, my show is like, I, I'm just a single dude from the middle of nowhere, like in Latvia, with like 2 million people and 59 of Latvia is a forest. So um, I don't I don't even know how this happened. But, but yeah, you're, you're right about, about all of this. I think the more optimism should be needed in Europe. Then again, Americans should kind of, 
sometimes evaluate the the odds a bit better i think just just sometimes maybe you know in which way i mean doing something uh, doing something utterly utterly crazy which which yeah. like r- risking your, risking yourself and putting everything i mean doing something crazy is nice but you know you, you just don't bet all of all of your money on the, on the single spot on the roulette table you kind of set, put half on it and then you will see yeah. how it goes i think a bit more careful attitude but... no no i agree and in fact there are you know the the stupid enthusiasm one of the issues is still stupid you know it's there's still that problem that sometimes you're not being very discriminating and saying yes to stuff that you shouldn't say yes to uh, but still, again, if you're going to pick from people who automatically say yes to everything and people who automatically say no to everything, regardless of the reasons why, yes, usually there, there's life there, there's possibility. No kind of shuts down everything. Yeah, I, I guess so. Hmm. Wow, it turned into philosophy discussion. <laughs> oh, well, it, it just just happens. So, But yeah, but the optimism... I, well, as you know, I'm a, I have a master's in philosophy, and and about and people were just laughing at me when I said what I'm going to study. But but I was like, screw you guys! I want to be a journalist, and I know that journalism in journalism school is actually pointless. Mm-hmm. Every professional journalist will tell you that studying journalism in school is just stupid. So I went sure. to study philosophy. I had and people were just laughing at me about how pointless all of this is. Well, I don't know. If you study something just to get a job, then it's kind of pointless. If you study something to become a better person, then it's actually one of the best things to study, I think. Did you ever watch uh, the movie Dragon, the Bruce Lee story? They did a biography. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, actually, I remember we had this one Russian guy who was just dubbing all of the movies as soon as they arrived. Of course. Uh, this there was this one one guy who just dubbed everything all the time, uh, and dry, and I remember Dad taking me to a video kind of video kind of underground video hall, where they usually showed there were usually two movies showing and they showed some hardcore porn and then there was Dragon afterwards. <laughs> nice, that's always a good combination. Yeah, there's a great line in Dragon where they go. Um... Uh, they are making fun of Bruce Lee for being a philosophy major. And uh, the girl asked him, so what are you going to do with uh, being a philosophy major? And the reply was, I'm going to have very deep thoughts about being unemployed. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's, but, but, this, but this attitude like perfectly represents everything. I mean, I don't remember. I think Plato said that. Um, when, when asked should you get married it was like the response was something to the effect of well you know of course of course marry if, if the marriage is going to be happy well then you're in luck if the marriage is going to be unhappy well at least you'll be a philosopher then <laughs> that's funny well all this all this ancient ancient culture and ancient rome really really strikes me because i'm a huge marcus aurelius fan and stoa yeah. philosophy in general I mean, that's that's my way to go. I think when I feel bad, I just read meditations and and kind of it kind of helps you understand how unimportant all the temporal issues are because you know you, sure. you just read it and you think about how the most powerful person on the planet Earth actually thought about things, and that's yeah, interesting I, because sta- actually uh, Stoa was kind of appreciated by Stalin as well. Really. I'm sorry, was that- was appreciative of what? Stalin. Stalin. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's how... He was utterly stoic. Really? I don't know if he read the books, but as far as I read from, from his life issues, 
he was really stoic because he never threatened anyone. He was just this, never complained about anything. He was this cold person. And, and that's, that's one of his weird qualities that he was a terrible utter monster, but he was an extremely cold and calculating one. Yeah, and in fact, one thing doesn't rule out the other, you know, because yeah. Venus doesn't necessarily make you a nice person. Being a stoic makes you durable, makes you tough, makes you resilient, makes you, you know, a lot of good things. But none of those are saying whether you're actually a good human being or not. That's a whole different game. You know, if you are a good human being, stoicism actually give you some tools that help you become an even better human being. But if you are not, stoicism gives you the tool to become an even worse human being. You yeah. know, it's kind of like it, there's stoicism is like the force in Star Wars. There is no moral dimension. You know, if you decide to go down the dark side, then you'll be better at it. If you decide to go down the other side, you'll be better at it. Hey, we're, it we're already on the dark side, apparently. We're on dark myths, man. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's the way. But, but no, it's kind of kind of interesting. Well, I don't know, Stalin had the many career options. I mean, he could have stopped and being an Orthodox priest at one point. He could have stopped and being a, and could have been a bank robber at one point. You know, yeah. he, he was an interesting guy. But I really, really, I'm going to figure this out later. But I just wonder how a guy about whom Lenin specifically said, you know, when I die, it doesn't matter who, but just don't let this guy take power, okay? Not this I guy. Don't... This guy's going to be a bad choice. Um, yeah, that... I don't understand. Please actually enlighten me. How did that work? Um, Stalin had a interesting. Uh, Stalin had a nice theory. You're saying that hum, he who controls human resources is the most powerful, powerful guy ever. He yep. didn't get like you know why the Soviet Union had general secretary as their leader, mm. like no in the time. party because party ran everything. But originally, General Secretary wasn't the leader of the party. General Secretary was the head human resources guy. So right. instead of becoming the president of the party or anything, Stalin yeah. just accumulated a lot of power and kind of made that the position of power. He elevated yeah. the position itself. And then he just gave people more power, put his people into place, and then just played them one against, the other, one against each other and just you know killed off everyone and erased them. That works. And then he decided that he needed to industrialize the country and purged a lot of people, starved half of Ukraine. Yep. But, you know, ruthless but efficient. Give me a history lesson here. What was the starving half of Ukraine for? I never understood. I mean, I always heard the story, but I never understood the reason behind it. Oh, that's actually very interesting because uh, before Stalin... Russia was an agrarian country. After Stalin, Stalin basically built all the industry, railroads, uh, steel manufacturing, everything. But he had to get the money somewhere because czarist <laughs> gold tends to run out. So he decided that collectivization would be the way to go. And he just nationalized all of, all of grain, especially in the Ukraine part, which is extremely fertile. Mm-hmm. So he just took all the grain from the farmers, all of it, and exported to the United States, to everywhere. And for the money, industrialized the whole country. Mm, I see. And he needed to do that in a couple of years since like right. 37. So it was like a, start, it was a terrible to start the old, but that's the way to do business. I mean, this, the scariest part was, was how like uh, denouncing everything. But the scary, uh, this is why I'm actually kind of worried uh, about America. One thing that I don't like is all this NSA observation stuff, because I can really see KGB techniques there. Because KGB yeah. didn't actually send agents 
observing every how every house ever. Sure. They just uh, had a circle of. They just looked at looked at some one dude from a block and said, "Well, we have this nest information. Your your sister is probably your sister at one point helped an underground illegal newspaper to produce materials. Well, unless you kind of spy on your neighbors and write bad stuff about them, we're gonna send you to Gulag and your sister and all, all everyone that you know." Right. And they did, the, and once once that guy reports something, because he has to, they go to yeah. that other guy and yeah. make him a reporter as well. So they kind of made everyone in this Panopticon system, like yeah. Foucault and making Panopticon and this self-observation circle, KGP run on this. They made everyone as guilty as that. And we, this is one of the reasons why, for example, we have these uh, the so-called KGB bags like mm-hmm. the whole documentation of people who were those these reporters and it's 2016 now and at least in Latvia they still haven't been published and that's a, an act of political weakness of our politicians because i think that they're just not doing that cuz they're still in power even after all of this time at least some of them are and i and i if those those bags of, of denunciators would be opened even though they would be forced and people understand the situation i think it would look bad on some politicians resumes over here yeah, no, that that makes sense. That makes complete sense. The, the history of the Soviet Union is, is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> As Game of Thrones would tell you, yes. And actually, you haven't. Uh, actually, I've only read the books of Game of Thrones. I haven't seen a single episode of the series. Why? How come? Because I think I have this image of the characters in my head and I think the the movies might ruin it somehow. Oh, well, yeah, if you are overly attached to the to the book part, yeah, of course uh, of course books are, are you know, if if you want the books to be it, then of course it's never going to be the way when they turn it into a like if people love, you know, Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit and they were all pissed off with the movies because they think oh it's not exactly the way Tolkien did it. Well, you know, Tolkien was writing a damn book. It's not a it's, but I understand, I completely understand when you fall in love with a certain character, you don't want it to see it 80% like that, but then twisted or changed or something. So for sure, definitely. Oh, I'm going to also ruin some books from your childhood right now cuz <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. Because, you know, um, I, in one of my episodes, I talk about how Soviet Union basically plagiarized everything. Italian children's books were no exception. Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio was blatantly turned into a burattino. That was its name. Right. And, of course, at the end, he decides that communist thing is the best thing ever. And I don't remember who wrote this, but there was this Adventures of the Little Onion guy. Right. Uh, you know, that, that was also extremely popular. I think it was edited out as well. And, and there was the, basically they just took children's books and just rewrote them completely. Well, that's the that's the name of the game, right? I mean, that's how few things, even just in translation, most everything translation really means do it. It wasn't all. translation; it was brutally yeah. changing everything around. Just there. changed the whole deal. Yeah, it's it's funny. Yeah, and that also kind of was interesting because I had to. I, I was I was growing up reading Buratino, and then I learned, then I read Pinocchio, and I just spent a lot of my childhood just comparing these books. I had to see the original and the other one. But, right. But I don't. I don't know. Education, educational part, and personal freedoms are as a result of growing up and and living and hearing hearing all these stories about this oppressive regime. It's kind of interesting because it makes you appreciative of actual liberties of actual personal freedoms 
simplified oh, completely. That part is, uh, and in that sense, it's funny to us. Sometimes personal freedoms are relative because, I mean, we're saying about the NSA thing and the spying and the this and that. It's funny, though, because I remember even stuff that was just blatantly illegal the, um, was like, I don't know, you know, technically you were not supposed to spy on people conversation in Italy it was not part of the legal deal. You could only do it if you get a judge to sign up. They still did it all the time. You know, it was kind of like, that's what you do. It's still uh, so just because they don't tell you they are doing it officially doesn't mean that they are not actually doing it, you know? Yeah, but I mean, well, as in the Soviet Union, we all kind of knew what was what was going on. We kind of so any any attempted surveillance over here in Latvia would kind of fail because people know how to evade this this stuff. Yeah, exactly. That to me is where it's at. It's not because the government is not going to do it that suddenly you can get away with it. It's because they are going to do it and you find a way around it. That's more likely. Because to me, it's like whether they tell you they do it or not, it still happens all the time. Yeah, people just 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 bring inventions to the table. Like, for example, yeah. when the very first computers appeared in the Soviet Union, those are also ripoffs of uh, ZX Spectrum, ZX, ZX Spectrum, you know, the, that, that old computer which had tapes, which called mm-hmm. everything in tapes. So, you know what, in, um, in the Soviet Union, we had a lot of radio amateurism going on. We, we wanted right. to catch radio for Europe and everything. So, after... After the the collapse, people just didn't know what to do with these radio stations now because we could listen to everything freely. But then they figured out that they could translate programs through those radio waves. Of course. Oh, that makes perfect sense. That's, I think, uh, I think nothing like a good uh, outlaw underground to stimulate creativity. Yeah, but, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope someone pirates my... my, my under the paywall stuff too i I don't mind i have like three things there right who who cares all of these all of these author rights are kind of kind of interesting yeah Yeah, kind of wow you you made me think actually for once crazy about what about life in general and everything then again hell who cares meaning of life universe and everything is still 42 and everybody knows that that's the name of the game, right? If I don't get to do that at some at some point in any conversation, you will be thinking about books and you will be thinking about <laughs> things of life, and the two are usually interrelated. Mm, boobs. Yeah, I don't know. But what was your favorite childhood book, which kind of gave you gave you your first thoughts about life? Uh, when I was a kid, what did I read? When I was a kid, uh, well, when I was really young, I think probably I read Tolkien, like The Hobbit or something. And then when I was a little older, still like kind of young teenager, I started reading about Zen Buddhism. I started reading Nietzsche and I dug that a lot. Um, so on a more, on a fiction level, yeah, I think I was digging Tolkien and Robert E. Howard, Conan stuff. And then on a non-fiction level, I think I was dig- digging, you know, Alan Watts, uh, Buddhism and Nietzsche. We really didn't get any Buddhism here that much because... You know, all the books also had to be approved by the arts committee. So, for example, Plato's Theaetetus or Theaetetus in Latvian, when they tried to publish that dialogue, they had to write a preface explaining how that how that works into the ideology of uh, Mar- of scientific Marxism, because scientific mm-hmm. Marxism everywhere, right. obviously. And those pre those prefaces got like extremely silly because how are you going to explain how Plato works into scientific Marxism? Yeah, good luck, right? Yeah, you just have to make shit up along the way to justify anything. 
Yeah, but that's that's what they did. Uh, but, no, but the science fiction, but I grew up reading a lot of science fiction because that was the official literature, official genre of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Why? Because, you know, you have to give some hope to the people. Of course. At the end, it kind of broke down. Have you read the Strugatskys? No. Oh, no. I highly recommend that one. If, if you like some science fiction, then those are the first Soviet dystopias. The video game Stalker was made after their stories. It's excellent. You know, lately I'm having um, one of the problems with doing some of the podcasts that I do that I'm enjoying deeply and it's fun and it's great is that I don't have time for anything. You know, it's like, when was the last time that I read a book that was not for research for the podcast? Oh, same here, actually. I'm always, you know, whatever I read is whatever I'm doing for, because it's too much. You know, when you, for one episode, like History on Fire, I have to read, I don't know, 5,000 pages for one episode or something that's going, you know, there's simply not enough hours in the day. So I'm having fun because I get to read a lot of history that I dig, but of course it limits some of my options in the short run for getting back to doing other stuff. Talking about history and fire, uh, I have two questions there. One, how did you pick the name? Um, I stole it from a friend of mine. He had, um, he, he did this, Pete McCormick, he did this documentary series for HBO Canada called Sports on Fire. Oh. And I thought, that's so badass. I like it. And then we started talking. And we're working together on a history project. And at one point, I just blatantly told him, hey, I'm going to steal your name, by the way. Is that cool? And he was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Use it. And the second part is, do you know you already have a ripoff on the internet? Yeah, I saw that. That was, that was funny. Yeah, that was interesting. Because uh, yeah. I, I don't know. If you're, if you're making a podcast, at least make something original happen there. Or Yeah, that was a little weird. Um, I don't I want actually... to mention the name here because I don't want to give the guy any, any popularity. But, you know. Yeah, it was strange because I even, we exchanged emails at some point And I was, I mean, I don't know. It was a polite discussion, but it was strange for sure. People are trying to, to cash in on, on your extreme fame. Yeah, which I mean, I'm like, really? It's like at that point, go Dan Carlin route, call yourself uh, Hardcore History with other <laughs> letters, you know? It's like, do something. But it's like, at that point, shoot for the stars. Oh, well. I actually uh, stole my name from a pub, which used to be open in my childhood in the 90s up to 2000 in Riga. But technically, that pub was called uh, Sia, Eastern Border, in, in Latvian. So as I'm mm-hmm. doing that in English, I'm in the legal territory. I just thought it was kind of appropriate. Right. It seems fitting, definitely. By the way, on the um, speaking of names, and since we mentioned Dan Carlin's hardcore history, I just as we I just saw a notice pop up on my computer screen while we're chatting, saying that there was a message from Dan Carlin. So I'll be. Uh, I'm going to bow to the universe that allows me to correspond with Dan Carlin. I'm fairly happy about that. Anybody who's listening who has never listened to Dan Carlin, just hang your head in shame and go fix this mistake because Dan is the man. Dan is like the Pope of podcasting, I think. Yes, and he's such a nice guy. He's just a good person. Well, I don't know. Well, I hope I hope he actually listen. I hope he actually will take a listen to my show at one one point. Then then I'll then I'll just be happy and build a small shrine of, of him next to my Lenin statue, obviously. Of course, <laughs> right right with it. Yes, that makes perfect sense.
yeah, no, he's a nice guy. I got to meet him a couple of times. We did a Joe Rogan podcast together once, and then once we just got together for lunch. And he's just such a just a good human being, super smart and really nice. Well, it's, it's nice to meet such people. Well, yeah. um, I think I'm gonna have to quit now because it's um, one and thirty a.m. here in the morning. Yeah, you need to go to sleep. I, I really need to, man. I just wanted to ask you, as I'm going to do these, uh, I'm, I'm doing movie commentary tracks. Do you have a movie that you would like me to do and at least wouldn't mind me doing? Which would kind of be something Soviet-ish related, at least. Movie, movie, movie. Let me think. Because that's, that, that's the way how I relax, you know. That, that's my way of getting some fiction done. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. The Or, I mean... Oh, since we are talking about some of the spaghetti western and their popularity in the Soviet Union, that would be a fun one. Just especially considering that Clint Eastwood usually is about three lines in any of those movies. It's like just does not speak. Well, the fact that your commentary would be about 20 times longer than any of his speeches in the whole movie, that would be interesting right there. Oh, I'm so sorry. I speak a lot, really. Just that, I don't know. It's just like my extroverted personality. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, it was really nice talking to you. Uh, it was a great pleasure. And thank you for this. And yeah, if you ever decide to do anything about Soviet Union or want to know something, call me up. And I hope that you also enjoy this, listeners. Cool, man. Thanks so much. You have a very good one. Thank you. See ya. Take care. Bye. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. The darkness awaits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.